Good evening, everybody. I am Kenneth Rosa with the Father's Rights Movement. Tonight we have a guest, Alex Falcone. Uh, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. Uh, coming to you from the state of Nevada. He is the uh, person that runs the YouTube channel, The Proper Person, and our Nevada judges. He's a pretty smart, intelligent guy from what they tell me uh, to get him on the show. So we want to thank him for uh, tuning in tonight and joining us. We want to thank all of our fathers for joining us. Um, so that being said, uh, if you would introduce yourself real quick, Alex, and, and tell everybody just a little bit about yourself, we'll go from there. Thank you for the introduction, Ken. I am Alex Falcone, administrator of Our Nevada Judges, and I also have the separate channel, The Proper Person, which has my story and also um, some informational tidbits on how to represent yourself in court. And I was a father who faced false allegations, didn't have um, the ability to see my child because my ex wouldn't allow it, so I had to file a lawsuit and I couldn't afford an attorney. So I represented myself um, most of the way through. I like to use 95% because people don't really know most is like more than half or almost completely. It's almost completely um, my experience representing myself. And that includes um, four victories in the Supreme Court. Um, and also I was published by the Supreme Court in a case named Falcone v. Secretary of State. Um, but that's kind of the quick intro. And uh, yeah, again, thank you for the intro um, that you gave me as well, Ken. Absolutely. Once again, thanks for joining us this evening. So. Um, when you say Supreme Court, are you talking about state Supreme Court or, or U.S. Supreme Court? Yeah, I'm used to I'm in Nevada, so I'm used to saying Supreme Court, but it is the Supreme Court of Nevada that I I didn't file anything in the Supreme Court of the United States. OK, gotcha. I mean, that's pretty impressive, though, to be a guy that had uh, you had no legal experience, correct? Right. And so you, you filed. Right. You were you were a college student, uh, couldn't afford the, the retainer for an attorney. And so you had to learn the procedures and, and proper ways to file all this paperwork yourself. And, and now you're published as a in, in your state Supreme Court. So, I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. That's that's uh, typically the, the thing that I bring. I think brings most people to my uh, proper person channel is that um, they want to actually figure out how to win their case and um, it's just different from sort of I guess uh, the other the other chorus of voices out there which are also important voices um, because it kind of helps people understand they're not alone and that there is a struggle but um, my channel specifically that's definitely the highlight which is you know how to represent yourself and actually win okay i want to get your opinion i want to stress to everybody out there that we are not uh, lawyers we're, we're not giving legal advice but i want to get your opinion on a case that is uh that is going on right now so we got involved with a father in ohio last year um, mom became deceased in a in a motorcycle accident they uh it took us about three weeks working with the father to get the child back to him and the court was arguing that a third person um, wanted custody of the child, and so it, it took a little while to do that. So he lives in or resides in New York, and he took the child after they gave him the child back from the court case. They moved back to New York, and they've been there for about six to eight months. So uh, the people, the third party person, they, they kept filing motions, uh, and he responded to them. But apparently he missed a hearing or didn't show up for a hearing. And so they have posted a fugitive warrant and have arrested him 
500 miles away for failure to appear and are going to extradite him back to the state of Ohio for failure to appear in a in a civil court. Have you ever heard of anything like that before? There's only one way that I can imagine that, that would occur because typically when you fail to appear, they'll just rule against you. They won't send a they won't issue a bench warrant. But the one exception that I've seen is uh, for contempt of court. So even if it's a civil case, if there are orders to do a certain thing in a civil case and the person doesn't show up, the court can't just order you jailed, you know, just because you didn't show, just like they would do with all their other sorts of rulings. So, well, he didn't show, so he's just going to lose with um, punishing you, like with a fine or throwing you in jail. They actually have to get you in there. And I, I've seen that in Nevada all the time, but it's only for contempt of court. And it's only when the person doesn't show up to that specific hearing, then they'll issue the bench warrant. And uh, it, so, I mean, I've seen that before. Yeah, we're working with a, another father in Maine and one in California as well. So I don't really understand the legal precedent or how these courts keep in, injecting themselves in, into being the victim. But when mom becomes deceased, they don't even when she when she becomes deceased, they don't want to give these children back to the father who is the legal only person on the planet that has legal rights to them. And so that was the case in Ohio. That's the one we're seeing in Maine. Um, you know, there's there's things that they have to file motions uh, to keep these third party people that are claiming they have rights to the child. But um most states have struck down any type of grandparents' rights or things like that. There are ways around third-party things, but why do you think fathers have such a hard time even when, when the other parent dies and, you know, all of the paperwork and, and custody stuff ceases to exist with them? Why do you think fathers have such a hard time getting their children even when the other parent's deceased? Well, the two big issues there are gender bias and um, discretion. Um, so first off, those like grandparents' rights and stuff like that, those are created by statute. So if the legislature didn't want that to be something that grandparents could do, then they would eliminate the statute. It is true that non-parents can get custody of a child, but it's it's supposed to be difficult. Uh, some constitutional protections trigger like the uh, the parental preference presumption, which makes it a lot more difficult for a third party to get custody over a child, but not impossible. And um, one of the, the worst things to do is not show up because as a, as a natural parent, if you're a natural father, you're not going to court on equal foot, footing. You're going to court in a fortress. At least that's the statutory protections. The problem is, I think, um, incompetence. And that's why I created the Art Nevada Judges. And that's why I won so many appeals. It's because even though the statutes are there to protect us and even though the Constitution is there to protect us, the, the judiciary is not dealing with the statutes competently. I, I, I hear a lot of complaints about corruption, and I do think that there is a certain extent that there is corruption in the family court system, but I think that way more, it's just lazy judges, incompetent judges, they just don't care. And um, even if you have rights on paper, ordinary people are so intimidated by the legal system that they end up not really you know, getting those rights because they're afraid. They don't want to go to court. If they do want to go to court, they don't have the money to pay an attorney. And so you kind of have this legal system that we live in where, I mean, the, oh, it's like only rich people have rights because they're the ones that can actually afford to get attorneys in there to actually have those rights go from being on a piece of paper to a reality. So there's a lot of situations, not even just like the one you described, 
where um, fathers are thrown in jail for contempt of court for not paying child support when they shouldn't have been in contempt because they weren't paying because they couldn't afford to. Um, there's a lot of stuff like that where it's just there's all these rights and protections in place, but the judges don't apply them or the parent doesn't know that they have them or they can't afford an attorney to actually make it so that those rights do protect them. That's my response. Yeah, we do see a lot of that. Um, you know, mom goes down and files for the divorce or she files for the custody or, you know, and dad doesn't know that he only has a certain amount of time to answer. And so he puts himself in a predicament or, or being uh, behind in those type of situations. But then we do see the courts interjecting um, jurisdiction, as in the Bowman case up there in Ohio, to where they don't have jurisdiction when, when mom became deceased the jurisdiction of the court to be involved with that child ceased deceased with her. That's what we're seeing in Maine. But it, it seems like any way that any type of an attorney can inflict chaos to keep a child tied up in the system is what they do. So, all right. Um, I just wanted to get a couple of a quick personal opinions on that. So tell us more about uh, the, the stuff that you're doing in Nevada, because with the, the Nevada judges, you get to get in there and give informational or educational perspectives from um, trials uh, and things like that. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, so our Nevada judges, it really just started out as a statistical website. It evolved later into a whole, whole, you know, whole lot more. Um, so I founded it in 2016 after I started winning appeals because I thought to myself, I mean, it takes a lot of work and you do have to be smart to win an appeal, but that also means that a judge has to be screwing up. And so if judges are screwing up so often, where's the statistics on it? So I went online, I looked up, you know, any kind of statistics on how often these judges were being overturned on appeal. There was nothing there. And so I was like, you know, I'm a computer science major. I'm going to get into software engineering. Maybe I can just make a website that keeps track of each time these judges make mistakes. And just like that, our Nevada judges was created. And I track every single district court judge, justice of the Supreme Court and Court of Appeals judge on the website. And I keep track of all their mistakes. And so people can go into the actual website and they can see, um, you know, different family court judges have different error rates. Some of them are maybe 25%. Some of them are 30, 40, 50%. Um, it's alarming to know the actual numbers. And I just, just people just didn't know. A lot of people just assumed that whatever the judge says, must be what you know what's true that must be how the law works and so the purpose of the website was to show the public is actually sometimes they're just guessing they don't know they're just they're telling you this is how it's going to be and it's not it's not true at all and i mean that's how it all started out now in in uh, 2019 i looked at some of the supreme court rules and i realized that it wasn't that difficult to get news reporter access to these cases and i had been at this point building up both organizations at the same time. I was getting a lot of communications from litigants, from fathers, from mothers. Um, my website's actually pretty close to the 50-50 line on, on gender. Um, but anyway, I started to get these communications and I started to notice that there was a custody case that had spilled into criminal court. And there was a ton of people who were talking about it on social media. And so I thought, you know, if I am gonna try to send a camera into a courtroom, this is gonna be the case that I do it. It turned out to be the smartest thing that I ever did because the case, it just it blew up. It, it's all over the Internet. It's known as the state of Nevada versus Michael McDonald. I sent camera teams to record both of the, the jury trials and the public loves it. And there's there's all kinds of um, 
um, offshoots now. There's there's different channels that are doing commentary on the trial. Anyway, because that case was so successful, I started to submit media requests into all sorts of other cases. And now I lost count how many cases I have media access to, like maybe 30 cases. Um, and I, I started to kind of get into some of the family court stuff. So I've been able to get some family court judges to allow me to record guardianship cases, which is a big deal. I've gotten permission from a family court judge to record abuse and neglect CPS cases, which just blows my mind that I have the permission to do something like that, to get into that kind of courtroom. That stuff is highly confidential and sensitive, and they trust me to go in and you know responsibly cover that type of case. And so now our Nevada judges has gone from just statistics and errors to a full-blown, um, you, know, you know, I guess, media organization. That's awesome. So that is pretty alarming. So you say some judges are making errors 25% of the time and some are doing it 40 to 50% of the time. So do you think the reason why they granted the access was to show transparency or to try and uh, bring those numbers down for their errors or that that's pretty, that's amazing that they allow you in the courtrooms to record those type of things. So I'm just trying to figure out why they allowed you such great access. And that is awesome that, you know, they trust you not to dox the children and things of that nature. But I think most media, the people and personalities would be responsible in that case. So what's your opinion on, on why they, they started allowing you to do that? Well, I, I think that it's because of 2020. So I've always been involved in the elections, but the 2020 elections proved to be mostly on social media because of the coronavirus. And that really helped boost our Nevada judges' role in the 2020 elections. So I was interviewing judges and attorneys and candidates like crazy. It was the hardest year of my life, but not because I lost my job or anything, but because it was just so much work to actually leverage our Nevada judges during that, that particular election. And so that election helped them all know who I was. They finally got to see me, email with me, I met I met um, justices of the Supreme Court during that election. I, I met Court of Appeals judges during that election, very high level judges who wouldn't have ordinarily talked to me, talked to me because of that election. And so at that point in time, I think it was just that they knew who I was. They knew my organization and they just said, well, he seems to be doing everything else. All right. So let's let him record some of these these hearings. Um, certainly there are some of them that dispute the the mechanism that we use to compute errors and in fact there are at least there's at least one or two judges who were ousted because of their error rates they were they were brought up during the election by candidates candidates were saying go to our nevada judges this judge is a screw-up and that kind of stuff just even added more credibility to what i was trying to do it's and it, it going back to what you said earlier some some are 25 some are 40 there's some that are five percent six percent ten percent um most of the family court judges have higher error rates and i think that that's because they don't get reviewed as often they don't get challenged um which leads to sort of this attitude of becoming a law unto yourself it's like if nobody really challenges you maybe you are the law Maybe you, you can just say whatever you want. No one's going to challenge you on it. Whereas criminal judges tend to have very low error rates because they're appealed all the time. Very frequently, criminal judges are appealed. So they're typically hovering around the 10 to 15 percent mark. Civil, civil non-family, they kind of float. You know, some of them are, are doing pretty good. They're between 15 and 25. Others are up there with family court numbers, which is 35, 40. That's very interesting that you bring that up. There was a... And since you're in Las Vegas, 
there is a judge out of Clark County that is quoted as saying at a hearing, I am God. Why did he, and and there's, there's links to it. There's, there's videos out there on it. Um, Obviously, I didn't know we were going to go in this direction, but uh, that's very interesting that you were involved with that court. But um, why do we have judges in the family courts that don't seem to think that they're accountable to the same uh, scrutiny? And I get it. Fathers come out of these custody cases. They can't afford to, to challenge to appeals. Um, they just got beat up for two or three years trying to, to get access to their children. They don't want to deal with the stress or trauma anymore. But why is there such a low? Is, is it the money? Is it is it? Why do they not uh, check into the rulings of these these family court judges as often as the criminal side? That's because, and I'm gonna. I'm not saying this because that I like this or that I want it to be this way. My tone here is matter of fact. It's because we're weak. Parents, mothers, and fathers, and ordinary people are weak. Um, when you have criminal prosecutions going on, the public defender's office—they're not to be trifled with. They—they they fight. They file appeals. They don't care if their client is poor. They fight. They appeal, appeal, appeal. They'll get reversals. When you go into regular civil cases. We're talking million dollar, billion dollar corporations, banks. Do you think that they're going to tolerate a judge saying I am God to Bank of America? They'll crush the judge under their heel. It's it's effortless for them. There was a war between homeowners associations and banks in Nevada. Nobody even knew about it. The only reason I knew about it was because I saw they it was a war. They went on a war path filing appeals. It was it was appeal after appeal after appeal with the banks and the HOAs, gigantic titans. I remember talking to a district court judge and he said, wow, that HOA, you know, battle messed up my numbers. Those guys filed appeals. They got his decisions overturned left and right. It made him look bad. What does mom and dad do? They lose and that's it. They go home. And it's not because I want it to be that way. And I don't like that. But I'm answering your question, honestly. A mom mm-hmm. and a dad are considered weak and powerless and that there's nothing that they can do. They're too poor. They can't file appeals because they don't even know how to do it or they don't have the money to afford appeals, which are really expensive. And that's just the truth of it is the attitude, in my opinion, is what are you going to do about it? And for the most part, nothing. So that's how you have the situation that's different with criminal judges versus family court judges. And I'm sorry to have to say something that's so dark, but that's, in my opinion, the truth of it. A lot of people don't realize that once a ruling is handed down to you, you only have a certain amount of time or days. You know, it depends on the state, but uh, most states, it could be as little as 10 days to file an appeal or it could be as many as 30 to 60 days. But it's it's not a very uh, uh, long gap in time so if you just spent your entire fortune or had it taken in divorce or something then then i understand that people don't really have the money to pay a retainer for an appellate uh, attorney or something like that but uh, i think they kind of use that to their advantage too that that they've uh, yep. they've kind of used the system to to keep these appeals down i'm not sure that they care i don't even think that it's on their radar i don't even think that they think about it i think it's just it's like gravity. It goes in a direction and they just, they don't even notice it anymore. It's just nobody files appeals. I'm going to do whatever I want. And that's it. That's the end of it. It's, I really don't think that there's that much emotion or thought that goes into it by them. You know, it's different when you're a judge and you're not paying attention and all of a sudden you get order reversing, order reversing, writ of mandamus, writ of prohibition. It jars you. It wakes you up. 
it's like, okay, the Supreme Court said that I abused my discretion. They're going to pay attention to that. When they see uh-huh. groups go online and yell and scream and post stuff, that doesn't matter to them. It doesn't. And it's unfortunate, but it doesn't. Unless it gets to the point where there's like this millions of outraged, angry voices that spills into the mainstream media, something like that. Then you get something, of, you know, some kind of a reaction. But even then, eventually that blows over. So if you're looking for for some kind of serious change that actually gets the family court sort of section of the legal arena to to work more like the other sections really it comes down to maybe another way for the family court to be reviewed or maybe i mean there's just the the solving the problem would be so complicated takes so much work that even i didn't even come into this interview thinking of of how to go into what i think would work for that i mean but yeah if you had to give if you had to give one thing that the Nevada legislators could put in place to help uh, the people of Nevada uh, that are being abused by the family judiciary, what would be uh, your first step in that if you were to to introduce some type of legislation? Well, since I only have one step, the first thing I do is eliminate this statute that they enacted, uh, I think, in 2015 that allows the family court judges to award attorney fees whenever they feel like it. Um, As long as there is a custody issue on the table, the judge has the discretion to award attorney fees. And what that does is it breaks the financial back of the mother or the father. Um, So there's a lot of things that I would do, but that's the first thing that I would want to do. Okay. Talk about effective attorney fees on uh, self-represented or pro se litigants but it's one of the ways that they uh, crush the spirit of the parent is they tell you not only are we not going to grant your motion but we're going to basically take three four five twenty thousand dollars out of your wallet and it's it adds insult to injury it's the one thing that infuriates me um i can't believe that that's something that the legislature thinks is a good idea but they do and that just goes into the, sort of the business model, the uh, conveyor belt of the um, the family bench bar, the, the the family attorneys. Put people on the conveyor belt, belt, fleece them, and send them out the other side. So I think that reducing the attorney fee factor would be the first thing that I want to do. But I don't think that that would be enough. There's, there's quite a few other things that need to be done. What would be, that leads me to my next question, what would be your your opinion on the judicial immunity or quasi-judicial immunity for court actors that are intentionally or purposefully violating people's rights and then they hide behind this, this immunity clause to not be litigated or sued, um, as in my case here in Missouri, but what, what's your opinion on the quasi-judicial immunity and immunity clauses? So I don't really know when I, I, I'm going to give you a comment. I, I just want to sort of give a disclaimer is that I haven't done research on judicial immunity and quasi judicial immunity. I do get the gist of why it's there. My understanding is that if you have a problem with the judge's decision, they want you to rectify that problem by filing an appeal or in the alternative, filing a complaint with the commission on judicial discipline. And that is rarely acceptable. Usually they, they, they say if the judge screwed up, he did so on accident. He made a whoopsie and go to the Supreme Court, pay $25,000 and fix it. Um, they don't want people to sue the judge in a separate lawsuit and, and collect money damages. My understanding is that there is a way to do that. And that's if the judge says, OK, um, Mr. Rosa's different. I'm not going to just accidentally mess up his case. 
I don't like him. And so I'm going to understand that this is how the law works. And then on purpose, I'm going to apply the law incorrectly. So since I don't like Mr. Rosa, I'm going to ignore these statutes and I'm going to ruin his life. My understanding is that if you can prove that, then you can get past judicial immunity. But um, I just feel like any kind of judge that gets contested on on what they're doing, they're going to say, number one, I did what I felt was right as a judge. That was the correct ruling. Number two, if I wasn't and I made a mistake, it was on accident and I'm sorry. That's that's my understanding is how how that sort of process works. That's a good point, because I do I do. I want to I want to follow that up. So most judges, uh, they have three, four hundred cases on their docket. They don't have time to go to all of those houses. They rely on the testimony of the guardian ad litem or GAL. They rely on the testimony of the uh, therapist, the psychologist, the mental health person that is put in charge of the children's best interests, supposedly. And so I get why judges have immunity, but the other actors, if their opinion is so egregious or such a violation of people's rights or children's rights, then they should be able to be held accountable. So I definitely agree with, with your, uh, with your direction on the ideology there. Yeah. I mean, ultimately if a person could prove that one of these, so I didn't even go into the quasi judicial and I don't, I don't, I'm not really a fan of these other individuals or entities involved in these cases. I never had a GAL in my case. I never had a, a, a psychologist or a therapist that testified on the stand or anything like that. So I don't have those personal experiences. But the reason I don't like them is because I feel like people can't afford them. And the ones that they can't afford, it just seems to me like there's too much of an opportunity for the judge to just rubber stamp the decision of this other random person who isn't elected, who isn't a judge. And that's my concern. In Nevada, parenting coordinators are finally I'm not going to say they're done away with, but you have veto power now. I don't know if you have to deal with parenting coordinators in your states. But in Nevada, you can just veto a parenting coordinator. And just like that, the judge can't do squat. They can't order it. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of those those other um, professionals. I feel like I, the legislature should enact a statute that the court can't even appoint them unless the family is making like $250,000 or more com you know, combined. Um, and the reason why is because it's financially devastating to you know ordinary families to pay those kinds of fees. And oftentimes people will pay the fees for one of those experts and then they won't like the opinion and they will want to hire another expert to challenge the opinion of the expert that the court appointed, which is fair. But now if you if you have a person who's making 60 or 70,000 and, and you force them to pay $15,000 for this one expert, how are they gonna go on? That that was already difficult and then they have their attorney and now they have to hire another expert to contest that expert's opinion. So, I mean, there should, I would, if I was, I mean, a dictator, I would enact a statute that said, you can't even order this if you're a judge unless the family collectively makes 250k plus and that would most likely eliminate that issue from probably 98 percent of the cases that they see yeah it's a big thing so um we're rolling up on about halfway through this thing so i want to give a couple shout outs and uh hit a commercial break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about uh the stuff that you're doing on the proper person so my first shout out is to uh this is a t-shirt i got sent So uh, Mark Hallman's little girl drew the uh, drew up the uh, the little girl on there, and it says, "Children are not your income source. Source of state revenue, bargaining chip, 
They are our future. Shared parenting is best parenting. Reformthelaw.org. So if anybody would like to get one of these t-shirts, you can go to reformthelaw.org and I believe you can grab them from that website. It is my understanding from uh, Mark that they are donating the proceeds from the t-shirts to one of three organizations, um, National Parents Organization, uh, AFESP, which is Americans for Equal Shared Parenting, or the Father's Rights Movement. So we really appreciate him and the artwork and, and the t-shirt. It's an awesome t-shirt and I can't wait to wear it. I would have put it on today, but it, it's on the back. So then I would have had to wear the shirt backwards. Everybody would have thought I was uh, being silly or something. So my other shout out is to our Tuesday night host, Nick Wedlow. I purchased one of his books. I got a, uh, a signed autograph in there. He does that for all of the fathers that order them, uh, especially through those. You can get those through our website, his website, nicholasjwedlow.com. I have not got to read it. I'm sorry, Nick, but I stay busy and I'm working on it. I will get that done. So that being stated, we're going to go to a commercial break real quick and we will be right back. You love your children and want them to have everything. How about both parents? Introducing Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. The program is very simple. Sign up, download the app, access services. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program offers access to medical market, telemedicine, mental wellness, medical bill negotiation and advocacy, chronic care, and a wellness savings program with membership add-ons available soon, like prepaid legal services, prepaid college savings plans, prepaid identity theft protection services, and much more. Annual memberships starting at just $25 a month through Father's Day. Here's what our members say about us. You guys are a huge blessing in my life. This community is amazing. I truly thank you for all that you do. Learn more and sign up at www.tfrm.org. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. It's about the children. They're today and they're tomorrow. All right. So now that that's out of the way, uh, just a few of the benefits I'm, I'm told or, or my understanding is, is that if you're a blue collar worker such as myself, that the, uh, the insurance and things that you could purchase through that program would meet most states uh, requirements for you to carry some type of health insurance on the child. There are other uh, perks and benefits to that program, um, such as the partnering of uh, peaceful parents. Uh, that's one of those talking apps to where you can communicate with them, but you can't word vomit all over your, your co-parent. You can only send so many, uh, letters in your, in your text to them. So it's, Hey, I need to pick up Frank on Friday. Is that cool with you? Instead of anything else that might be considered inappropriate. So that's pretty cool. Also, that being stated, um, we are now accepting new sponsors to any of the shows, uh, corporate, uh, personal whatever it is you want to advertise or, or put up there, we're, we're accepting new sponsors to that. And we're getting ready to start rolling out a bunch of those. So appreciate you giving us a couple minutes of your time, uh, Alex, on, on that. And so let's go to the proper person, which is your YouTube channel. And this is where you post your videos, your, your life story on how you went through the, uh, the courts, how you went through the appellate courts, how you how you filed all of these things yourself. And so what else can fathers learn from the proper person YouTube channel? 
So one of the things that I, I can see even from the commercials that you you promote is a shared parenting and joint physical custody, which I guess a lot of states have now, including Nevada. We have a statute that says parents are presumed to have joint custody. And that if the court wants to you know, go apart from that, then there's going to have to be specific findings and evidence to show why they shouldn't share custody. So that's the law. But what happens if you don't have an attorney? What happens if you're too poor to hire one. How do you actually make it so that the law applies to your case? And that's the point of proper person channel is to help those types of people. It ended up expanding into a high conflict child custody, which is a more complicated aspect of litigation. Um, and that's kind of where the channel has ended up going now, which goes from, you know, how do you understand how, how to how to learn about and go through the court process to also how to understand the psychological, uh, the psychology of your ex, the high conflict ex, if that's what you have. And so there's informational tidbits on on things that um, you won't even think about if you're not an attorney. For example, the proposed order process. I can't tell you how many people have seen that video and they said, you're exactly right, Alex. I went to court and the judge said that I won. And then they asked the attorney to prepare the order and they they put stuff in there that wasn't that wasn't even brought up at the hearing. If you don't have an attorney, you're not even going to know what that is. And so the channel tells you how does the proposed order process go? What is the notice of appeal? When is jurisdiction divested on appeal? It's stuff that's really frustrating for a lot of people because they're not attorneys. But what's the other choice? Just give up on their kids and walk away. And so the channel helps people take the only route that they really have, which is self-representation. Um, the other thing that you mentioned that I like to talk about is my story. So that's put into its own separate playlist on that channel, and it's called the My Docket series. And one of the reasons that I did that is because I know that people learn by example a lot better than they do, like, you know, just kind of theoretical academic discussions. When they go through the My Docket series, they can see each and every single filing at each and every single hearing. And they also get my commentary the whole way through. And so I, I've noticed that it helps a lot of my viewers because then they can actually see literally what was filed by me, what was filed by my opponent, what was filed in the Supreme Court, how the judges responded, how I fought back. The hearings are one of the most popular things because people get to actually see what I was doing to get the outcomes that I got in my case. And so, the uh, My Docket series contains every single filing and every single hearing from the very beginning where I was on supervised visitation all the way until the end when my excess parental rights were terminated. So, I mean, that I mean, that's the beginning and the end of the proper person. It's it's a tremendous resource for people who can't afford an attorney. And, you know, I like to say one more thing about not being able to afford an attorney. The answer to when you reach that point is not the same for everyone. Some people can't afford to hire an attorney for a few hearings for like uh, maybe a case management conference and a, and, a, and a bench trial and that's it they move on but those same people they can't afford an attorney for a high conflict child custody ex who has mental health issues because that other person is violating court orders left and right you're having to file 52 different contempt motions instead of two hearings now you have 15 hearings oh the judge is screwing up so now you have seven different appeals you had to file you going going and hiring an attorney for a couple of hearings for five or ten thousand dollars is not the same as hiring a legal team that would cost you a million dollars because you have 300 filings in your case and 20 hearings um and that's that's where i'm at in my case um in my case is over by the way that's the, the termination of parental rights is the end there is no more case after that um but 
over 300 filings in my case. And I think it's between 16 and 20 here. I lost count. I haven't memorized it because it's just, it's a lot. So have you ever tallied up uh, what just average the, uh, the the 16 hearings? We're not talking about your appeals, but if you just went to the 16 hearings, what would that probably have ran you if you were to hire an attorney that you, you like you said, you couldn't afford the $5,000 retainer in the beginning because you were a college student. So just roundabout guess, what would that be? What would that 16 hearings have cost you? I feel like it would probably be somewhere between $250,000 and $500,000. And I would not have gotten this outcome. So I would have paid around two or $300,000 and I would be in a worse situation. And I don't want to say that that's a great reason for people to represent yourselves. I'm just answering your question. In my case, that would have happened. Correct. You're not a, a licensed attorney. I am not either. We, we can give our opinions on what we think uh, is best for our situations. And, and people are, are, you know, it's a free country. They're, they're more than willing to or welcome to go check out your your things and apply those things to their cases the way they see fit. So uh, it should not be construed as any type of legal advice. It's just opinions of, of both of us. But that's a quarter of a million dollars, which is very funny you bring that up because over seven years of litigating to, to see my children that I haven't seen in, in two years, I'm about probably somewhere around 250 in. So uh, we haven't made it to the appeals court yet. We haven't made it to... Um, I did file a lawsuit against my court actors in the, the county of St. Louis with a bunch of corruption things that have made national news and, and things like that. But, yeah, that, that's a pretty good estimate because that's about where I'm at. It's about 250. So, um, And I don't have the outcome that you did. Let's talk about uh, that child. You know, he, he is, is older now and very well adjusted. And so how's he doing? You know, I have a, I'm going to give, I'm going to answer this the best way that I can. I did a video on it where I went into detail for the different sort of phases of his life because he, I mean, how he was doing changed a lot. He, how, he's doing great now. He's getting A's in school. Um, hardly. I mean, when we were going through the litigation, we had to help him with his homework a lot. Um, he was struggling. I mean, just normal things that children go through when they're being subjected to abuse and neglect. And, um, now he doesn't have to go through those things. So he's doing great. He's uh, He even gets into things that I never got into when I was a kid, like debate. I was way too shy, afraid of being laughed at. Not him, he, he does that. He also has friends. I didn't have friends. Um, well, I was kind of a loner, you know? So I, I consider him to be doing a lot better than I was. And um, he kind of went through a worse situation. The only difference was that my dad wasn't able to litigate or be a part of my life, and I was. And I was able to use the legal system to get you know, to get him into the situation that he's in now, which is a whole, a whole lot better than what it was. Like I said, I, I believe you're a very intelligent uh, guy, and I respect a, a lot of what you've done over there on uh, the proper person and our Nevada judges. Um, that seems to be the issue that we we're, we're seeing across the United States is, is that there is absolutely no accountability for any of these judges. Um, why would a judge ever publish a video in a conference or at a, at a hearing that I am God? I mean, nah, you put your pants on the same way as, as the rest of us. And if you didn't have that immunity, you, you probably wouldn't have three quarters of the things that you have, but it is what it is. So I, I just think that there's no accountability nationwide 
or worldwide um, for the way that the judges are making these rulings. And like you said, being being if it's if it's being lazy or I don't I don't believe they're they're unintelligent, so they can't be making uninformed decisions. They're just making improper decisions. And anytime you remove a fit, willing, able and loving parent, that's an improper decision. I don't care who it is, what the sex is. If they're fit, willing and able, they should be in the child's lives and we should work backwards from there, in my opinion. So. I mean, that's what the law is. So if the law says one thing and that particular thing isn't happening, then where's the disconnect? And I think that's where you get into the problem of incompetence and also the influence of the um, family law attorneys. But, you know, the, the biggest thing that I wish more people would understand is law is a business and that's an issue because it's connected to our rights and our rights as citizens of this country is supposed to be something that we all have yet because it's tied into this machine, this, this money-making machine, which is the way it, it has to be, at least from the perspective of the attorneys, they have to go to school and then, and then create and, you know, establish a firm and then work. And they don't want to work for free. Just like nobody, you know, you don't want to work for free either. I don't. But the problem is that that I think has created a sort of a force that's stronger than the parents. This, this particular, you know, legal community fills a void when it comes to a particular area of law and you know moms and dads they don't know how legislation works statutory construction plain language rule appeals they don't even know what a writ petition is like stuff that all attorneys know and so they're not able to really exert their power and so what's what's left is this void where the these attorneys who kind of you know are running these businesses they have the control and the say about the statutes and i almost you know, went into the attorney thing again, because that's sort of the objective of the firms to make money. Um, when you look at other sectors of law, like banking and finance, yeah, attorneys have a say, but those gigantic, you know, financial entities are bigger and more powerful. I'm talking about multiple million and billion dollar companies, military and industrial complex. Yeah, maybe some attorneys have a say there, but there's a complex that's stronger than that. Unfortunately, what I've seen is that whoever's powerful seems to be the one that has the ability to change the rules. And I feel like that's not going to change with respect to family law until mothers and fathers have a seat at the table. And that's, it's gonna be a very difficult thing to do without knowledge, without education, you know, without people even understanding that decisions can be made incorrectly. Because people understand subjectively that, in you know, they can understand, I don't agree with that decision. A lot of people get that, but I don't think people understand that there are actually hard and fast rules that judges are not following. So we're expected to go and follow all the laws, but they can just do whatever they want and render random decisions. I don't think people know that there's actually an objective way to measure judges who are not doing what they're supposed to do. I really hope that um, you've seen the um, Judge Judy interview on the Norm MacDonald show because she talks about this problem of family court judges. Have you seen that? Um, I do believe I have, but it's been uh, it's been some time. Yeah, because, you know, she had a, a different perspective, which is kind of consistent with our Nevada judges. She thought that the way to solve the problem was to point cameras at him. She says on the show that family court is that I hate to say this because I talk to a lot of judges. I'm just I have to say it. I agree that Judge Judy's raised some concerns that are valid on that show. And for people who don't know, she's not just a TV judge. She was a family court judge in Manhattan. And she said that the family court, these are her words, not mine, was the dumping ground 
of morons and political hacks. And that the way to solve the problem that those are her words, please don't don't get mad at me. She said it. Right. She said right. solve this problem, you have to point cameras at him. That's the only way to solve it. That's her opinion. So she's not even saying file appeals and change the statutes. She thinks if you just show people what they're doing, that'll be enough. That's what she thinks. So, I mean, that's another thing that we can think about is is maybe the idea of of keeping cameras out of those cases wasn't the best idea from, you know, our perspective as parents and, and families. Maybe that does more to protect judges and attorneys than it does to really protect us. These are things that people should start talking about. I mean, we talk about, you know, joint custody and, and our rights, but we don't really talk that much about what kind of mechanisms do we implement to make those things happen. And so on one hand, you talked to me in the beginning about changing statutes. That's one thing. On the other hand, we talk, we can talk about pointing cameras at them and letting people see what they're doing. So, I mean, that, I mean, I hope that answers everything. Absolutely. Um, so once again, it goes back to there's, there's an, uh, there's no accountability for these, these judges or GALs or, or therapists because there's no cameras in the courtrooms. Uh, they do a lot of their things, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to leave that into my next question here, but they do a lot of their things in council or in chambers. And then most of the case stays off of the record. So in your that particular case, well, that's what I was going to ask. In your particular case, how did you keep them um, from doing uh, chamber councils or were you privy to those type of, uh, to those type of things or the, because you were a pro se litigant, they had to do everything in the court on the record. Yeah. They had no. My understanding is that because I was a pro se litigant, they had to do everything in court. But maybe they could have done a chambers, but they would have had to have me in there. So in Nevada, we have judicial canons that make um, ex parte communications a huge deal. That's one of the quickest ways for a judge to get suspended or kicked off the bench. And so I think maybe they can have a pro se litigant in chambers. I don't know. All I know is they would rather just keep everything in the courtroom than have a non-attorney go into that chambers room. That, so I, it's either a rule that you can't go or that that if you can, that they just don't want to do it because they have just some reason why. I don't know. Um, when I did have attorneys, which a few times I did, they did do that. And I didn't like it. And <laughs> if I had any kind of power over that, I would say no more. It, there's already so much distrust. This The public already does not trust what's going on in these cases. And so then they go and do those, those sidebars and those chambers conferences, which just makes people even more suspicious. The optics for that are so bad. I mean, the judge is supposed to be making findings of fact and conclusions of law, and they're supposed to be considering the evidence that's presented to them. How do you know that they're not going to go into that chambers and, and, and to consider something that's not in the record? You, you don't know. And um, there's a lot of judges who are like, well, I'm honorable and I'm honest. I'm not going to. OK, well, maybe you are. But the public doesn't trust judges anymore. Not like they used to anyway. I remember citing a case in one of my appeals from 1913 where the Supreme Court of Nevada said there's this law we have. And that's because the public has so much respect for the judiciary. I'm like, what? That's not going on anymore. That's 19 whatever now and now everyone just suspects it's a money-making scheme and divorce court and then they've got the the child support shenanigans going on and kid uh, cash for kids and in nevada we've had multiple judges who've been removed from the gen uh, from the bench um two i can think of off the top of my head one for 
serious incompetence and then the other one for literal corruption not like just throwing the word out there as hyperbole he was actually corrupt and he was removed from the bench so and then we've got a judge who left like a a, i don't know if i want to use the word pornographic thing but anyway he ended up getting uh, reprimanded and he retired so he's gone now um these are just this is the reality is that that things are different now there is no trust or very little trust, at least from the public. And so these chambers and these sidebars are all that's doing is just making people even more suspicious. Absolutely. And for those that aren't aware of what uh, Mr. Falcone is referencing, the cash for kids is the a couple of the court actors that I filed a lawsuit against were, were directly on that video. And they, they named themselves cash for kids because that's the enterprise that they're running out of their courtrooms. Um, and so I'm very interested to hear that, that ex parte communications in Nevada are strictly a no, no, because that's the only thing that's going on here in the St. Louis County family course. We have the emails, we have uh, the videos, we have all of that stuff. And, I'd be damned. Not one of those judges has been removed. Not one GAL has been taken off of their their assignments, and and we're just doing business as usual. Now they've 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 locked down uh, the zooms. You can't get into onto the zooms as media, and you can't. Uh, they're not letting people into the courtrooms now to not because they're doing things different, but because they don't want their their egregious actions coming to light. But. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting that other states have those type of things. And so that's going to be interesting for the next coming legislator here, because I'm going to to start pushing that we have to have some type of accountability that people can get a fair shake in family court. It shouldn't be the only court that's off limits and that they can just do whatever they want and say, I am God. Yeah. You know, by the way, the, the, whatever judge said that, I'm surprised somebody didn't file a judicial com- uh, ethics complaint against him because I'm sure that that would turn into something. Maybe maybe just an admonishment, but probably a reprimand. Um, you know, I wish I would have talked about this, but one of the best ways to hold your judges accountable is having a really strong commission on judicial discipline. Um, I'm pretty proud of the commission on judicial discipline we have in Nevada. Um, I'm especially proud of the prosecuting officers that I have recorded. They have let me in to record the prosecution of judges and the public loved it. They watched those that sent my number two a series is the, um, the prosecution of judges by our commission on judicial discipline. Um, I know a lot of people aren't happy with them. A lot of family court litigants aren't happy with them. And I think that um, one of the things that uh, people don't understand in Nevada is how little money they have. Um, I've, you know, communicated with the executive director, and I am convinced that he does want to to improve the judiciary in our state, and he just needs more resources. So, I mean, one of the ways that you could have um, some more accountability would be to empower the Commission on Judicial Discipline in your state. It probably has a different name in your states. Uh, make sure that they have um, a fighter at the helm, somebody who's going to charge them, charge and prosecute them, um, and money. They need they need an actual budget. You know, our Commission on Judicial Discipline probably could use three, four, five times the budget that it has. And that's just going to help us. It's going to help the public. It's going to give us more oversight. And that's something that doesn't require filing an appeal. That's something that somebody can can get relief from separately without having to go and hire an attorney and, fi- and go to the Supreme Court and spend all that money and stress and wait two years. You know, it's like... 
I, I wish I would have talked about that a little bit more earlier, but definitely look into the Commission on Judicial Discipline that your state has and, and look in and see. I mean, is is it just a, a rubber stamp organization? Are they weak? Because there have been some embarrassingly weak commissions. I think the California one was completely purged. They just purged it and replaced all the members. I don't know. There's probably some news on it. Um, but th that's another thing there. I mean, I've seen judges in this state you know, power and fear at the Commission on Judicial Discipline. And that's because over here they have power. They do go after judges when they think that they can prove that they are guilty of violating the canons. And they do punish them accordingly. I mean, you were talking about ex parte communications. We have a judge who was doing ex parte communications with a therapist. And the Commission on Judicial Discipline, they fined her or suspended her or something. And she did it again. Guess what they did the second time? Removed her from the bench. They said, you're done. Get off the bench. So, I mean, that's another thing that this is this is the public doesn't know that there are people who are trying to fight for them and they just don't have the support of the public because the media doesn't put them out there because they don't have the skills to get you know connected with these groups and they don't have the funding because the legislature either doesn't care or they want them to be weak because the legislature is full of mostly attorneys. And so. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of drama that goes on too. People don't even know how much drama goes on between judges, between judicial districts, between the different uh, types of judges. The commission between the commission on judicial discipline and the judiciary itself, there's drama. Drama between lobbyists, like the th there's a lot of stuff that ordinary people just don't know what's going on, and the media doesn't talk about it, and it's too bad. Um, hopefully. I have um, some faith in humanity because of the internet, because people like you and me can create organizations on our own. We have some other um, independent news groups in Nevada that are um, pretty impressive. We have the storyteller who um, was involved in Supreme Court litigation for for uh, expanding the uh, news shield statutes from actual like TV and newspaper organizations to bloggers and online groups. Um, we have an investigative journalist who followed the prosecution of one of our justices of the peace for years. Um, and so this kind of stuff makes me have hope because people like us can bring awareness to things that are going on that, you know, Fox News or CNN, NBC, that they're just not talking about. Yeah, I do. I do understand that, unfortunately, um, as relationships break down, that family court is a necessary evil, but it can't be evil. It has to be accountable. It has to work for all of the people, mm -hmm. not just the ones that can afford justice or um, yep. Or, or they have the right attorney. It should be it should be equal, not not evil. That's what we're going to start saying. It should be equal, not evil. But uh, we're running up on the end of the show, and I always ask um, all of our guests, "What is something that you would? Uh, what advice or what recommendations would you give to our fathers out there?" Well, I, the the best thing that I can say is if you're if you're you know trying to deal with an issue in the court system, um, try and do your own research, even though it takes forever. You have to either pay in cash for an attorney or pay in time. And um, the biggest way to you know, end up losing your case is to do neither, is to not hire an attorney and to not put any effort into it. And um, I know it's one of the most difficult things for people to do because we all have jobs and we're busy. But um, if, if you can't afford an attorney, you have serious issues that need to be resolved, you know, so you can get access to your children or you have to litigate or go to court or whatever. If you can't afford an attorney, then maybe your only your only hope is to 
learn how the process works and, and do some research and put some time into it. Um, I, I hate to have to say that knowing that everybody in this world is struggling so much with all of the other things in their lives, but that was the only way that I was able to do it. It was just pouring so many hours into figuring out how the process worked and um, yeah. And so the proper or the, uh, the proper person is on YouTube, correct? And then, um, our Nevada judges, is there a website where people find that at? So both, um, the proper person and our Nevada judges have a YouTube and a Facebook, um, and a website. Um, only our Nevada judges has a, uh, it has a Facebook. Sorry about that. So, <laughs> so both have a YouTube and both have a website and only uh, our Nevada judges has a Facebook. The proper person is not on Facebook. Um, and it's you just type it in just like just like it sounds. So the proper person.com will pull it up and our Nevada judges.com will pull up uh, our Nevada judges. All right, I'm gonna throw those in the comments real quick. And they're both.com. Well, I do appreciate the, uh, the insight, the opinions, uh, the time you've given us, uh, I really, really appreciate you. Um, you're a very intelligent guy, and uh, I like everything that you bring to the table and the hope that you can give to fathers that might not see a way to to be in their children's lives, um, you know, if they can't afford an attorney. And so definitely want to thank you for, for your time and for coming on our show this evening. All right. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, our guest next week is... Christopher Arps. So he is a radio personality here in the St. Louis, Missouri area. Does some uh, some conversations. He's a used to be a principal, I believe. He's a strategic communications person, and so it's going to be a very interesting. Uh, he's always in the news, and he, he's he's pretty locally famous. So it's going to be an interesting conversation with him next week to get his opinion on uh, family court matters and the father's rights movement and things of that nature. But uh, that's going to be a great show next week. So uh, definitely once again, Alex, I really, really appreciate you guys and uh, the time that you've given us and to all of our fathers out there, we ran so long in the conversation. We didn't really get to get to any conversation or uh, questions, but uh Yes. Well, one of these days we'll have to get you back and we'll have to do a, uh, some type of a Q and a with the, with the audience so we can get to maybe a little more interaction with them, but you just had so much knowledge that it kind of went a little bit long. So want to say yeah, uh, thank you to you. Thank you to all of our fathers out there. We love all of our fathers out there and the women that support them. And we will see you guys next week with guests, Christopher Arps.